Tal Zaragone Taruma Harugamne, Saragonosu Natal Mailasse, Certano Saragono Namedalamo, Yuttaple. Welcome to Con Larry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With us across the pond, we have the beautiful Bianca Richards. Hello. And over near the Great Lakes area here, we have the intelligent William Annis. <laughs> Hello. And Brains we have... and beauty. I don't know. I need to make a list of adjectives. Anyway... And with us, we have a special guest um, from over in Sweden. We have Ashev of the uh, CBB. Good evening. All right. So well, he's even more restrained doing? than I am. <laughs> yes. Hi. Well, so how are you guys doing? Uh, you know, all right. Just fine. Bianca, is your house hunting going any better? Well, we found a house. Now we're going through the fun stuff of actually buying it. Oh, the nightmare. So, yeah. Mm, dear. I don't know for how many viewers have bought houses or plan on buying houses, but it's a pain. I've heard it's a little bit extra pa- painful in uh, Britain, actually, but... Yeah. Oh, because it... Oh. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know. Of course, I've never bought a house in America, so I don't know. That's true. Oh, um, I've never bought a house, so I wouldn't know anything about it. <laughs> Same here. Yeah. Well, you can look forward to it. You can look so, forward to um, it. I've never decided mom- if if the process leading up to it is worse than the anxiety that you have for the first year or so after owning a house, where every creak, every noise causes you anxiety that your house is about to fall down. I don't know. I just keep uh, well, paying my rent happily. Yeah. I can, I can, yeah. um, I can see about that experience because I've moved into new houses before, but it wasn't too much anxiety because the the house where I'm that where my family's in now, we built new after the other house burned down here. So no, that doesn't make it any easier. The anxiety <laughs> is all. It's like you'll go shopping and you come back and you're like, "Yay, my house didn't burn down." <laughs> Like, that was the thing. When I lived in Maryland, there was a, we were kind of in the middle of nowhere. Well, not the middle of nowhere, but there was a lot of forest. And I swear, every time there was a thunderstorm, I thought, one of the tree trunks is going to fall and land on the house, and then we're not going to have a house. <laughs> a branch fall down and cause some damage. And then, but- trust me, these are massive trees. Like, a branch would kill the house, and then the tree <laughs> would just kill the house more. But I think the biggest problem I had was, like, when I went to school in New York, you hear all sorts of noises when you're in the city. And then when I moved back home, I kept hearing these weird noises, and I was like, I don't have anyone to blame these noises on. Where are they coming from? <laughs> uh, well, I have a little problem adjusting. You would never know if you had a haunted house in the city, ever. <laughs> well... <laughs> That's why people live in cities, too. So I would would assume no. So, anyway. drown out the sound of the ghosts. Ghost ghost hunters uh, caused me to cease to believe in ghosts. So, anyway. Let's get down to our topic here. 
Today, we are talking about phonological processes. So, what exactly is a phonological process? We're not just talking about straight-up allophony, but just anything that changes changes the sounds of a word. So, um, there can be sort of morphophonetic interactions and stuff going on. We're going to talk about probably some things that not everybody will be um, familiar with. I, I think most people who are listening here know about mode of articulation and point of articulation, where... Um, Manner and place. Yes, they're the same. That's the same thing. Yes, I know, but that's what we call them. Anyway, we will probably be talking about distinctive features, which is probably not everybody who's listening knows what distinctive features are, but basically it's when you break down the manner of articulation and the point of articulation, you can break those down into a bunch of binary features that you have a plus or minus on. And you can probably look it up on Wikipedia and get a good idea of what what those are. But a lot of times these processes we're talking about involve changing a specific feature. I sometimes suspect that this sort of featural analysis exists entirely to make it easier to explain some of the things we're going to be talking about today. That could be true. It's not necessarily... Like, when we talk about phonemes and we talk about a lot of things in linguistics, we're talking about a model of what's going on in your mind. But nobody really knows what is going on in a speaker's brain when they're talking or listening. I certainly don't. (laughs) (laughs) So... Yeah, I'd say sometimes these models are more sort of to help people talk about it more concisely. But why don't we go into our discussion a little bit. William, you have a lot of the the sort of... Well, Bianca, why don't you start... You get made up a list of different processes you can have. Yeah, I mean, there's only so much you can actually change, and things you can do are you can add something... You can take something away, you can change something, or you can move something, which in technical terms ends up being like a parenthesis. You can add something in, deletion, you delete it. Assimilation is when you change something, usually to match something else, which is probably where we're going to get most of our talking. Uh, William mentioned dissimilation, which is the opposite. You change it to be less alike. And then you have metathesis, which is where... You move something around. Or just Specifically, two sounds switch places. Yeah. yeah. You don't really get that much going on with the moving, I don't think. Yeah. Um, I think that's pr- a pretty good um, breakdown of the basics of it. There's some... There's some sort of nuances you can you can talk about well, with certain... That's the broad categories you get. From there, yeah. you can get into what specifically is happening. Like haplology and all that kind of crap. Um, one thing I, I, um, well, <laughs> sorry. This, this, this is that we're gonna have to. I'm gonna have to do some editing here. Okay. And William, you were talking. You, you have a bunch of notes, sort of. You, you, you were the one who brought in dissimilation here. 
Right. Um, I, why don't we give a few examples? Let's start with assimilation and give some sorts of examples of things that can happen. And then we can talk about dissimulation because those are more complex and frankly less common. Yes. Um, yeah. The main point I want to make at the start here is all of the things we're talking about can operate at different times. Mm-hmm. And by times, I mean you can have something that happens synchronically within the language as it stands now. You could have certain kinds of changes happening. And in other circumstances, if you're doing historical conlang, these changes can happen over time. So what we're discussing today is useful for both a historical conlang and just describing a, a realistic language without too much history. Yeah, and well, yeah. there's sort of a gray area you can think of, too, because diachronics affect what the synchronic um, processes are. I mean, all of the various phonological processes you get in a language probably occurred from a sound change somewhere. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably synchronic changes are the engine of diachronic changes. I'm, I'm not going to dispute that, but <laughs> what we're talking has, has use for conlanger in many different kinds of conlangers. Absolutely. And you can also, uh, you can also work with, uh, like a synchronic conlang and just create irregularities that you can justify with the help of these processes. And you don't, like, you don't have to do all the historical linguistics. You can just add an historical, an historical change that exists only in theory, but your conlang will get an irregularity because of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's something we mentioned in a previous show somewhere. Yeah. I think, like, these are great ways to get your regular, regu- irregular, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Um, your irregular regularity. Or no, oh. backwards. You know, just... Regular <laughs> irregularity. Because it's almost midnight. That's fine. Irreg- no, regular irregularity. All right, let's move on. <laughs> um, so, assimilation. Um, this is various... Um, William, you mentioned that there's various things you you have in your notes here. There's various different things that can assimilate, and you you mentioned specifically voicing and aspiration and the point of articulation, place, place and manner. It's- right. So, and Bianca also made the same list. So, when we talk about assimilation, the the first point to notice is that assimilation can go either direction. You can have progressive which means a following segment is changed, like the English plural. Mm-hmm. You have a sibilant, which is either voiced or unvoiced, depending on what comes before it. Or you can have a regressive change, which causes a segment before something to change. And probably the classic example in English is nasal assimilation. Mm-hmm. Right, like impossible. Yes. Um, and, and, and so what can assimilate? By voicing, we mean, is it a voiced or voiceless consonant? That's pretty simple. Um, the place can assimilate, and again, that's nasals, where your N turns into an M before any bilabial. It's yeah, well, I'd say anything can assimilate to place, but a nasals, hap- it happens really often, right? Yeah, it seems, it seems really easy yeah. for, for nasals to do that. And it happens in so many languages as well. Yeah, it's, it's just everywhere. Um, yeah. But you can get assimilation of other weird features like aspiration 
which English does not do, but something like Sanskrit does, um, and ancient Greek did, um, you might get assimilation of glottalization. You might get two adjectives in a row. Mm-hmm. So pr- pretty much anything on that IPA chart, either across or up and down, can be selected as something to assimilate. Now, wait a minute. How do you get two adjectives in a row? How do you even pronounce that? It's pretty easy. Okay. <laughs> I have practice. D- double aspiration is harder. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. I used to be able to do it more easily because ancient Greek does that, but I've not been... I don't often have occasions to pronounce ancient Greek um, out loud. <laughs> it's, kind um, of, it's kind of not a language that people speak anyway. So. Right, right. Yeah. The other thing with assimilation is you don't have to just take one thing. You can assimilate multiple things. Like, you can take voicing and place. So, you know, if it's not that similar, you can move it to the same place and the same voicing. I wish I had an example, but I don't. Right. So you can take more than one thing and change it. And they don't have to assimilate in the same direction. So there's a language in Africa called Nobin. So, which is Nubian, a Nubian language. Um, and they have this great system where your plural marker, um, causes voicing assimilation regressively, but place of articulation progressively. So you get a double consonant <laughs> at the result. So they borrowed the Arabic word for book. So it's kitab. Um, but the, not the plural, the direct object is kitabbe. Huh. That's so instead of kitab, kitab, eh, so you get two P's instead of one B. So you've lost voicing, but that's because of the suffix. And then the suffix itself, which after a vowel is K-E, has turned into this. Mm. So what? you can have all sorts of exciting hanky-panky going on at the morpheme boundary. Yes, and that's that's one of the, the interesting things because where these can these happen is at morpheme boundaries because obviously if it just occurs if if you have something that's excluded from morpheme boundaries which is another interesting thing you have things that can occur at morpheme boundaries things that can occur at word boundaries and things that can't occur at those boundaries right um you can have sort of uh you can have sort of very sort of divergent rules and one thing we've been not talking about so far is, is everything, and most of the time we care about what happens within words, but these processes can happen across words as well. Often the rules are different. Mm. Um, when you have cross-word processes, it typically gets called something different, namely sandhi, which we've borrowed from Sanskrit for some reason. Mm-hmm. But it's the same, pro- the same sort of thing. And um, the thing with assimilation is... What we've talked about so far occurs when two sounds come into contact, but it doesn't have to be two sounds coming into contact, does it? Nope. No. You can have it, like, you you have things like vowel harmony that just, the, those vowels aren't next to each other, they're just in the same uh, phonological word. And it can also be uh, entire segments of sounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, vowel harmony is interesting. Um, because I'm using, well, all of us who've taken linguistics courses are always fed Turkish 
um, as the example of a language with vowel harmony par excellence. But that has height assimilation. There are other languages that have vowel harmony that operates on quite different lines. I don't have them all in my brain, so I'm just going to recommend you you do a little Googling. But there are many kinds of, of vowel harmony out there that are interesting and seem to me underused in conlangs. Okay. <laughs> I plan on adding vowel harmony. <laughs> but it was actually height and rounding, yeah. so... Let's uh-huh. kind of move on. We've talked a long time on assimilation. Why don't we, we need to get through stuff, so why don't we talk a little bit about dissimilation and then keep going down on the different types so we can get through that part of it. Okay. Um, so dissimilation is where something changes in order to be not the same as a sound that appears in the same word or is in contact with it. This happens in English, doesn't it? Um, trying to think of an example. Really? I can't think of an example in English. Yeah. Maybe no. I can give you a Swedish example if you want, a historical sure. one. Yes. You have the uh, the old word, the old word, um, no, the old Norse word for key, which is uh, lykkel, which comes from uh, the word lyk, which well, the root is lick, which means to close. And because you have an L initially and a final L as well, um, the first one simply changed into an N in uh, Swedish, Danish, and Norwegian. So the current Swedish word is nickel. Oh, <laughs> that's interesting. That's also, and this, uh, yeah, and this also disrupts the etymology. Um, in Swedish, the word for close is completely different. But in, uh, for example, in Norwegian, you still have the word lukke, which means to close. So... The connection is lost in the dissimulation process. That's interesting. Neat. Um, there was a process in ancient Greek where if a dental stop ran into another dental stop, the first one turned into a fricative, namely the S. Mm-hmm. Um, and that process continued such that in modern Greek, any final voiceless stop historically has become a voiceless fricative. I mean, syllable final before another stop. Oh, interesting. So that's one of those those things where um, sort of one historical tra- sound change tra- uh, leads to others that are similar to it. Sure. Now, I mean, two p- arguments could be made about the change here. It could just be the normal process of fricativization that often happens to any consonant sound that follows a vowel for long enough. Um, but it does seem to me like it was motivated by that first step that the dentals took. Hmm. It could be. Um, so, I don't know what, what to say about, really, dissimilation. I, I kind of wonder about what the, the, the motive behind it is, but obviously that's not something that we can really say. Yeah, there's theory about that. So, two that I've listed here are Grassman's Law, which occurred in Greek and Sanskrit, and I don't know if there's a law for what happened in Akkadian, but in Grassman's law, the rule is you cannot have within the same word two aspirated consonants. Okay. One of them will have to, or two or whatever, you can only have one, so you will lose aspiration. And this causes all sorts of weird declensions to happen on a small number of nouns. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind this is that somehow all those aspirates are difficult, quote-unquote, to say. No one has come up with a good operational definition of difficulty in pronunciation, so this could be iffy. 
And then what happened in Akkadian and all of its children, like Babylonian and Assyrian, is they decided that you only get one pharyngealized consonant a word. Mm-hmm. And not only only one pharyngealized, but only one pharyngealized and or uvular. So you had the ka sound turning into k, and your 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 velarized or, or pharyngealized sa pa, all of those becoming simple or plain rather, with only one left somewhere in the word. And the rules for determining which consonant got to keep its pharyngealization are a bit complex. Oh, that's, that's interesting. So it seems like um, it seems like sometimes these kind of things can be based on just the phonotactics kind of changing, or maybe they lead to the phonotactics changing. I'm not sure I understand, George. Well, I'm not sure I understand either. <laughs> Why don't we... Because Akkadian doesn't... I mean, apart from the changes of these sounds, it, it's not like its word shapes are remarkably different from Arabic, say. Okay. Sort of moving along, uh, Bianca, you listed one other process, which is metathesis. Well, metathesis isn't, like, that big of a thing. It basically is just sound switching. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know where I'd put it, but it is a type of movement. Yeah. I think metathesis is weird. For Like, the only... I can't think of a good example. I just think of people who say axe instead of ask. That's metathesis, yeah. Yes. That's, um, sometimes, I think in that case, it's sort of like a one-off that makes it easier to, to, um, to say, maybe? Um, well, I don't know. We've had some in English. My favorite, uh, is, I think, grass used to be garce in Old English. Mm-hmm. Neither of those seems easier or harder to say to me. That, that could be true. See, to me, metathesis, whenever I hear about it, I don't know if it's very common as something that we can find a, a structured rule for. Maybe it does come from st- structured rules, but a lot of times it seems like weird uh, one-offs. Like in, uh, I think I've mentioned before, Spanish, um, the, vo- the uh, vocal Latin word uh, parabola became palabra for no apparent reason. Spanish does seem to confuse uh, R and L quite a lot. Um, well, confuse they metathesize them. Uh, it might it might happen more often. Um, there is in- actual R L confusion in some dialects of Spanish, uh, particularly for final R sounds. But um, in some of the derived verb forms of the Semitic languages, you do get metathesis. Excuse me, metathesis. <laughs> um, in some of the languages where you have a prefix involving a syllable stopping T might do a dance with the first consonant of the root in some of the child languages. Huh, that's so that's one, one, one language family I know where metathesis happens as a grammatical process. Hmm. Yeah. That's uh it's sort of um yeah. I mean it's it seems it seems kind of odd for some reason. Um one thing I wanted to bring up when we're bringing up all these phonological rules, particularly when we're talking about synchronic um, phonological processes, things that uh, you can see happening in the current language that are productive, um, sometimes there's a difference in register 
in fact, a lot of times there's a difference in register and how these processes are are working. So in a very formal, like theater English or in singing, sometimes you hear less um, vowel reduction, a little bit less dropping of certain sounds. Um, most certainly, uh, standard English writing does not reflect the phonological processes that are going on. And sometimes people trying to speak very formally end up reversing some of these processes by way of spelling pronunciation. Sure. Yeah. Um, My favorite example is French, that when sung, resuscitates vowels that disappeared a few hundred years ago. (laughs) That's just horrible. (laughs) Yeah, word final E reappears and is pronounced in in some styles of French singing. Yeah. Well, it's a very um, interesting thing that I see is this is not even just... um, we haven't talked about tone changes or anything, but the difference between the tones in Chinese in running speech and in this weird uh, poetry reading register, I like to call it, are pretty marked. And it's not even phonological processes being flattened. It's just like the standard sort of way that tones get reduced normally just doesn't happen because they're pronouncing it very slowly and clearly. So you always have third tone being ah with the the falling then rising, rather than just being a low tone, which it usually is in running speech. Yeah, the the old the old Chinese dude chi- reciting poetry style is pretty distinctive. Yeah, there's but there's always things whenever people are trying to quote-unquote enunciate, or whenever people are trying to say things in some stylized manner, you're likely to reverse some. But in on the other end, sometimes phonological processes can be co-opted for poetic use. I know that in um, Spanish, there's a tendency for vowels to diphthongize across word boundaries, and sometimes poets take advantage of that to fudge their meter. Sure. Too much yeah. poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I know this, this, but this is this is something I wanted to to make to sort of mention. It's it's maybe a little bit of an advanced thing if you if you develop your conlang to the point that you want to think of what is the literary tradition of it, then you can work on that. Yeah. Anyway, do we have some more points to cover here? Did we want to add a bit more on a penthesis? And did we want to see if I'm actually echoing? Um, I'm not hearing any echo on my end. Okay. I'm hearing echo from everyone except for George. Alright. <laughs> maybe, maybe, so maybe it's your end. Down my, my stuff. Try it now. Hello? No, still echoing. Okay. Um, one thing, Bianca, you said, mentioned, have something in your notes that I kind of want you to elaborate on. Basically, you mentioned ordering of processes. I think that's yes. an important thing when you have multiple phonological processes going on. So, When you have multiple processes going on, it is important to choose an order because occasionally if you switch the order, it'll change the outcome, yeah. especially if one change that feeds into the other. So one yeah. of my favorite things about the language that I killed was that it had ordered processes that fed into each other. So 
it was basically my favorite way of just eating consonants. Uh, so, re- wait, huh? Could you repeat what you just said? Because you broke up. I have no idea because I'm echoing all over the place. Okay. Um. So, ordering of process is important because certain processes will feed into the, each other, and if you do them in a different order, you can end up with different results. Yeah. Um. I remember always in my linguistics class, um, when my one uh, phonology class, the teacher used French and as and as as an example, and I don't remember the whole details, but the order that in which the final consonant deletion and um, nasalization and I think a couple of other rules occur in has a ha, has a major impact on the it basically leads to the final outcome of the word. Oh yeah. I think the example I had was something in Polish with the genders and I don't remember. Yeah. Well, it's an important thing to point out in like any part of uh, a conlanging that the ordering of anything is very important and it's something that's quite commonly overlooked and I mean different ordering will produ- produce like drastically different outputs. Mm-hmm. That's actually one way to get a great historical change without being too fancy would just be all of a sudden have people switch the order. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That would be interesting. Um, like do a voicing change before, an, before a fricativization change? Yeah, that could be fun. <laughs> you know, we didn't actually list down nasalization as a phonological process anywhere. That's because it's... Or kind of an these, assimilation thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of an assimilation. There's there's a bunch of different phonological, smaller phonological processes that I don't think we really have time to cover. So um, just like go on the Wikipedia list of them or wherever. I don't know if Wikipedia has a big list of them. They should, but somewhere... <laughs> if they don't, someone should write this page. Yes, but just find a big list of the, the phonological processes and, you know, just... You can pick and choose, or if you're the kind that wants to do really wackiness stuff, you can just go nuts and add a bunch of them. But definitely make sure you you figure out what order they occur in. Even I would suggest even like writing out the rules if you know how to write out phonological rules in the like the equation format. Write them out in order, and then you know how to how everything happens that was one of the great things about venedict is it gave the sound changes from vulgar latin to venedict by several century clumps and you knew the order of all of those changes mm-hmm. i think ordering the processes is probably one of my favorite parts of doing the phonology for my conlangs but that's just me it has a major impact on the sound of your language doesn't it? It does. And when you do uh, diachronical linguistics, um, like when it, then it's extremely important to know exactly what order all of the changes will appear in. Yes, and that that, is, that has an impact on what the final sort of order of what processes occur synchronically will end up in, too. Yeah. Um, I think we've talked enough on this. I don't think we can really be exhaustive on phonological processes because not in one show things. 
What? It's going to take. It would take several shows to cover the wide range of possibilities. Yeah. So why don't we move on and talk about our featured conlang, which is Novogradian. So um, Novogradian is sort of a what would you call it? An alternative history language, an alt lang, or something? It's a Slavic language. I would call it an uh, a posteriori conlang. Yeah, it is a posteriori. It's spoken sort of like northern, not not quite. How would we say this? From the map, it looks like it's sort of. It's spoken in contemporary uh, Latvia, Estonia, Finland, and northwestern Russia. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see. I see it sort of extends from Russia all the way to the the North Sea or whatever. There used to be an actual political entity called Novigrad, and then it was swallowed up by Russia. I forget when. So the idea of this language is that that political entity persisted to the modern day. Yeah, and okay. that the old Novigradian uh, Slavic dialect actually persisted, because in actual history it got absorbed into like a Russian dialect continuum. Okay, so... And I believe it, that's is... one of the the main design goals, is that he has um, invested a lot of time and investigated the uh, old Novogradian dialect to get inspiration to create this Novogradian language. And like basically the theoretical question, if this ancient dialect actually had survived, what would it look like today? Oh, so this is basically just a big what-if scenario. You could say that. Um, it's, I note that it's written with, uh, Cyrillic, obviously, because it's Slavic and so close to Russia, so. I love the grammar for this thing. I mean, there's this weird situation where we have a huge number of these sort of zonal conlangs that are all various kinds of pan-Slavics and stuff like that. And this is yet another example of those. I don't know if anyone is cultivating the use of the language widely, but that is happening for a bunch of these sort of resuscitated, reimagined pan-Slavic languages. But what's great about this is that it is so highly documented. It's just, it's wonderful. It's extensive. I mean, there are real languages in the world which would love to be documented this world well. Yeah. Yeah, and he has... Fully, fully documented grammar and even sort of ancillary things. Like right now, I'm looking at color terms, and I, I approve of this basic colors list because it has no orange and no pink. <laughs> but it does have light and dark blue. That's a typical Russian thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. I would say that uh, Novgorodan is probably uh, it's probably the best developed uh, a posteriori conlang out there. At least in the in the narrower sense of the term, which is the one I'm using, basically, it is derived historically correct from an ancestor language. Yes, um, and I I wonder if you could really think of this as a different kind of conlanging because I mean, yeah, a a, a posteriori, but he's sort of just saying if this language had developed into the modern day. This is possibly what it would have been. Yep. Uh, and, I mean, it's not quite the same thing as what Venedict and Brythenic do. It's, um, 
which is all another kind of what if scenario, and it's well, I think they overlap a lot. Actually, they belong to this category of languages who intend to. They have an ancestral language, and they apply sound changes, grammatical changes, and like a hypothetical real world scenario, like all adding that into the development and, and seeing what it would look like. So there is no actual just. It's not this entire process of conlanging that often occurs that you take a little bit of that and of that because here you actually have a base you have some rules that you have to follow and then you just see where you can take it but even so it's uh, you have a lot of uh, creational liberty yeah william you will really really like the way this um this dictionary is laid out oh will i yes because there's not so much like multiple entries and, and explanation. There's some etymology, but mainly he has full declension charts for everything. Um, that's okay if the word is irregular. Just having them slammed in because you've got a program that will do that is less interesting to me. Uh-huh. I actually quite like the preposition list here. So less the preposition with the case that you use them for and what meaning that means. Yes, I like the fact that I like the way he did prepositions because, like, he has the big explanation beforehand with examples and everything, and then he has the giant chart of them, so you just have that for reference. And yeah, it it this is one of those languages that has prepositions and case and mixes them up in interesting ways. So, a standard inter-European trick. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's typical for Slavic languages. Uh-huh. Uh, the part of the language that I looked uh, looked into the most was actually the nouns, which I found fascinating. Mm. Uh, what I like is that you actually have... Well, of course, uh, it's natural seeing as it's a, um, a real language, so to speak. Um, you have a lot of quirky case things going on, and you have a lot of different case usage. So that's something that I see in many conlangs, that you have one case, one usage, but just like in a real language, Novogradian has several usages for each case, and some of them are actually really cool. And it has taken the old um, the old Slavic cases, and it had it's merged two of them, deleted one or two of them, I think, and then created two new ones from various endings. Mm-hmm. And for example, Novogradian has both the genitive and the partitive, and the way he has made those two overlap, it's, it just adds a huge amount of realism to it. And what's really nice about this is it's not just gigantic charts of re-envisioned Slavic verbs and nouns. A lot of attention has been given to discourse stuff, so we have discourse markers and a chapter on topicalization and, and um, emphasis word order, even though I hate the word emphasis. Yeah. All of this shows a really great concern for communicating with this language. Yes. Mm-hmm. Basically, I would say that you could more or less use this as a manual or a frame for creating a natural language. Like People will often want to create a romance language developed from Latin and so on. And this is really the way to do it. It's just realistic and it's very well developed and follows hypothetical developments, which are quite credible. Yeah, although the chapter order is a bit peculiar, but I don't think that matters that much. Yeah, well, there... I don't know, I don't see much... I guess he, he could have, in some cases, 
consult some things into larger parts with with chapters in them or something, but um, yeah, it just wouldn't have occurred to me to put the chapter on prepositions where it is, or more to the point, topicalization comes after adjectives and before pronoun syntax. So that's you know doesn't matter. It's a grammar. Yeah. Um, but I like the fact that he has stuff like uh, an appendix on colors. He has stuff on given names and uh, or just per- people's names. Uh, he has a whole bunch of these little things. Um, he has a little bit of dialectology. Actually, quite a lot of dialectology. Much more than you usually expect. Um, does this language use diminutives as, as much as Russian does? Uh, I haven't seen that. Yeah. Anyway, it's brilliantly documented. It really is great. Yes. And, well, of course, this is this is like a 500-page grammar, right? <laughs> this this guy has worked very hard on that, this uh, language for a long time. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, he actually uh, printed it as a book. Uh-huh. Like, just for personal use, but still. That's got to be one nice, hefty book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, See, here's the, the dictionary does have some nice touches. Like the word "gire" has two meanings. One of them is fodder, and the other one is fuel or kindling. Yes. So that's a, that's a nice little. And the, the etymology is from common Slavic, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce. That means fat or oil. So that's great. So I just, I just hate seeing dictionaries with word with a single word English definition. Yeah. Oh, so he. Also mentioned, okay, I wasn't really l- looking too closely at the dictionary, I just saw the basic. But he also did a good uh, job of doing semantic shifting and stuff. Yep. Um, ah, okay. Yeah, he did some interesting... I'm, I'm just looking at random words right here. Uh, yeah. Well, um, we can't really... All I can say is, please just look, please check out this grammar, because it's a great, definitely if you're going to do an uh, a posteriori conlang of any kind, then this is a good thing to sort of model yourself after. Yep. If And um, I think any conlanger could get something from the sheer um, volume of work that's here and you know, get an idea of all the different things that you can actually mention when you're documenting a language. Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely because you have a whole lot. Sometimes you can think there's a whole lot more to a language than you are thinking, really. Yeah, there's a lot of depth going on here. Even, I think, with looking at the verbal stuff earlier, he'll not only go with, like, the typical tense kind of interaction, but certain words will have a specific kind of change, uh-huh. and he'll go over, like, the individual words that are a bit weird as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a very good amount of depth going on here. Do we know how long he's been working on this? Uh, no idea. It says so uh, 2006 to 2012. Oof. Sorry, 12 years? No, nah, 6 years. 6 years? It says first published online 2006, which okay. could be even longer. Yeah, he probably done, 
uh, research and stuff before. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have to remember that when making a language like this, with this kind of detail and depth, especially a natural one derived from an ancient one, there is a huge amount of research going on in, in his case, uh, researching Slavic languages, the old Novigradian dialect, and just historical linguistics in general. So he's been working on this for a while. Yeah, this is a mammoth effort. Yeah. I would be very sad and feel like a complete slacker if he did this in a year. That would be... That's impossible. <laughs> it took me like three or four months to write um, a tenth of what this guy wrote in a grammar. So yeah. I don't think this is possible in a year. Unless he was like locked in prison and they're like, write a fake language now. <laughs> well... Like, I had pretty much nothing else to do, and it took me that long, so... How many languages have you made before that, though, George? Uh, well, I had sort of worked on conlangs, but I had never formalized them in a grammar. Yeah, I think once you've done one or two, then you can do them a little faster, but... I mean, obviously, David Peterson produced a lot pretty quickly because he was being paid to. <laughs> well, yeah. Somebody was paying him, so they had deadlines and expectations. So. Right. Um, if I was being paid, I could probably do a workable language in about a month. <laughs> but not Novogradian. Not Novogradian. That would that would be insane. Uh, so why don't we? I'm gonna link to the um the Novigradian page and the show, show notes, and you guys can check it out. You can download the P big PDF grammar. You can look at the awesome dictionary. You can look at all the different sections online here. Um, but we're going to sort of wrap up our discussion, unless anybody has any extra comments on Novigradian to say. Nope. Okay. But everyone should look at the chapter on the discourse particles, because more links need those. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to move on to a feedback. So we got an email from a guy named Nathaniel Fisher. He said, I really enjoyed your episode on gender, and I thought I'd contribute my own interesting tidbit. In the Kiowa Tanoan languages, there is a very unusual way of marking number that interacts with gender. Kiowa Tanoan languages typically have four genders and three numbers, singular, plural, and dual. Uh, every word expected number, I'm thinking he means to say every word has an expected number. Yeah. If the number is unexpected, then the inverse num number marker is applied. What is funny is that the, is that what number is expected varies from gender to gender. So in one gender, you might have the singular and plural mark with the same affix, while in the next gender, you may have the plural and dual mark with the same affix. Look up inverse number marking for more details. So Those are really interesting, but I don't think that what's going on there is actually gender. Typically, linguists describe the nouns that take the different patterns as belonging to particular classes, but that's basically a declensional class or a plural marking class. It's There's no other sort of agreement that happens with those. So it's not always associated with a gender, you're saying? It's sort I don't of... think 
the Kiowan languages have grammatical gender as we normally understand the term. Huh. Like they but they're, have... they're usually called classes, which may have, our use of that word might have pointed him off in a different way. Okay. So what were you saying that they, they have noun classes, but they don't necessarily agree with anything? Right. It's like in Latin, you'll talk about you, your class one, class two, class three, class four verbs. That's not gender. That describes what pattern of conjugation they take. Oh, okay. You talk about a class three Kiowa Snowan noun, you're saying that it's, I forget which one three means. Four means that it's fundamental root word is dual. Oh. And then when it takes the unexpected marker, that marks either singular or plural. Oh, okay. So they may not, that, that's not really a gender thing. It's just the different nouns take different expected numbers. Different plural kingdom. Or singular or whatever is needed. But it is an interesting sort of grammatical number thing. Typically you cannot tell which number is tended unless you get also marking on the verb. Huh. Bianca, what do you think about this? It is interesting. I wonder how it came about. I could see it coming from like residual genders that disappeared, but I have no idea. What what about you, Asha? Well, there could be uh, some semantic difference in the various, well, so-called genders here that over time just developed differently. Uh, as he says, they expected different numbers. I spent some time looking up on these, and I don't think anyone's found really good pattern semantics that describe things that end up one number class or another. Yeah, I have no idea how this evolved. In one of these languages, but not all of them, the inverse marker is the same everywhere. So that sometimes the suffix will mean this word is plural or dual. In other words, it will mean this word is singular. It has the same phonological shape. That's neat. Because I already have a hard enough time when, like, in Swedish, when the ending en is definite, because I always want it to be plural for no good reason. German. Oh, yes, German. I blame German for everything. <laughs> well, en is uh, a plural definite in Swedish. Yes. So now I'm more confused. Well, only on some of them, right? Mm. Um, no, I think all no? plurals. No, wait, neuter plurals. They yeah, take, see? Uh, en in the definite, and then... Um, the common gender takes en in the singular definite. Hmm. That's why I'm confused. Yeah. The, the Kiowa languages are a little confusing in this regard, too. Plus, um, we have a documentation difficulty in that a number of the communities that speak these languages don't want um, white people documenting their language. Oh. Is this one of those things where we don't want other outsiders to speak our language? Right. Hmm. So some of them are kind of well-documented, others are very poorly documented, which makes some of the thinking about where on earth the system might have developed hard to think. Well, uh, I think we can wrap up this episode. I'm going to go to our guest first. Ashev, do you have any final words of wisdom? Um, Basically, uh, you should take inspiration from Novogradian when it comes to realism and look at all of the various aspects of uh, of the grammar and like all of the various things you can do with a single case, for example. That's a uh, that's very good advice. Always, never, never just um, let your cases or your prepositions or 
any sort of thing in your grammar, just follow the default textbook definition of what that case or that mood or whatever does. Just, you know, try to find interesting ways to use them. All right. So, Bianca. Well, now I have to give serious commentary. Um, be bold with their phonological processes. Don't just agree, you know, with voicing. Just delete stuff wholesale and assimilate everything. <laughs> be bold. Yep. Okay. And now, William. I, I like that. Be bold. I'll just go. I'll, I'm just going to borrow. I'm going to say, listen to listen to Bianca advice. All right. And I'm going to say happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Comments, questions, and suggestions can be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and maybe leave us a five-star review while you're at it. You can also like us at facebook.com slash conlangery, follow us on Twitter at conlangery, or circle us on Google Plus by searching for Conlangery Podcast. Our theme music was created by the band Noel Device. But then you have people who say guitar and crazy people who say it the weird way, which is what? Guitar. Yeah, no, don't say that. I'll just sit back and occasionally say something rude. (laughs) But that's my job. That's what I did. I took a picture of like a mid-sagittal view of someone's head and then I just traced over it. (laughs) (laughs) That's your map? Really, this city is called Petrograd, but all of the inhabitants call it hypothalamus. (laughs) I wouldn't Um, bother censoring slut. (laughs) Okay, people's moms love me. (laughs) Why does it sound like there's a hairdryer? Sometimes I catch myself being really slow. I just now realize that the notes in the Google uh, document was just like personal notes without any order. So what's that theory thing where it's based on like the features, but they're kind of in a tree format? A tree? No, what? that doesn't make any sense. Optimality okay. theory? Optimum. I don't think so, but... Mm-hmm. I was about to say optimization theory, but that's a math theory. Well, well there are various things. Yeah, we know. No, I cannot say anything useful about optimality theory, and I would rather not get hate mail from optimality theorists. Well, I don't want to... It's not optimality theory. It's like... We're not professional linguists. We only play them on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So that's really distracting to record that when we can all hear an echo except George. Uh, I shouldn't hear any echo now. I know what the problem is. I should have checked that uh, an hour ago. Was it your Skype settings? Yes, it was on Stereo Mix. George, <laughs> you're fired. So next time this happens, I'm going to stop the show because it really, really is distracting.
Oh my god. What a weird little guy with a nose ring. That's a script. <laughs> that's still a weird little guy with a nose ring. Yeah, that's true. Are you looking at Lodgeman now, William? No, not on purpose. <laughs> my cursor sure. merely stopped there. <laughs> that's what they all say. It scares me. Oh dear. Yay. <laughs> um, I have friends who got married and his name is Wiesenfarth. And her last name is Schmolt, and I really wanted them to hyphenate the name to Wiesenfarth Schmolt, because that really does sound like Austria-Hungarian royalty. <laughs> what the hell? That sounds like they should get the name changed. That's terrible, because at least for the lady, she could hope, oh, if I find a guy and he actually has a decent last name, I could change it. Nope, but she falls in love with Wiesenfarth. Another week. I'm going to be really excited when we hit 52. If we hit 52. We should just stop at 51. <laughs> <laughs> That's just mean. No explanation, just everybody be like, wait, what? There were artistic differences. Well, we can blame Bianca's husband for splitting up the band. Oh, no, we call him Yoko. Was nice to be here. Sometimes we need to get some some uh, some color on this podcast. We're all Does white people. Mean? Oh, okay. Or are we? No. I don't know, Ashiv. Are you not white? No, I'm actually. I'm very white. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I was just making you're a being point. From Sweden, it's funny who we put in into different racial categories. Because to me, Iranians don't look very different from like Southern Europeans. We have an Iranian guy whose parents fled the revolution, who is now living in Sweden, doing Iranian pop music. Filmed in L.A. with Bollywood sort of stylings. I just, I just love this mix, this sort of cultural mashup. <laughs> Articulation. That's right. Sorry. Um, did we lose somebody? No. Oh wait, maybe we did. We lost. Did we? Uh oh. Okay. Well. Let's let's let him for a bit while Skype tries to get him back. Um, yeah, I'm back. Oh, okay. Um, I have no idea why that happened.